If there's one thing that's better than running, it's got to be running with your dog. Join Sean Sobon and Ivor Regers for Trail Tales ARP, Canicross Edition, where we will explore the growing sport of Canicross and the adventures it will bring for you and your canine pal. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Trail Tales, a running podcast, Canicross Edition. Got a very special guest with me today, Dr. Maggie Brownbury, who is a vet, and she is here with the CVMA, the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. Brownbury, uh, thanks so much for joining me all the way from the East Coast of Canada. Thanks for having me. Um, I just want to start off with saying that there are a lot of people that, you know, obviously have dogs and love dogs, and, and we like to be active with our dogs. And I discovered the sport of Canacross, which is, you know, cross country running with dogs. Uh, sometime last year and been running with my dog Piper, who's a rescue from Manitoba. She's like a yellow lab mix. You know, one of the things I did was joined online forums about Canacross and try to absorb as much information and material as I can on the sport. And, and I came across, you know, a lot of common questions that people were asking about the sport and, and I wanted to have a professional, somebody who knows what they're talking about on, because, you know, with, with Facebook and everything like that, you can get so many different answers and you don't know which way is up, which way is down when it comes to that type of stuff. And um, my main goal is to help promote this sport. It, it's provided me with such a great bond with my dogs. Like I've never had before. And I've had dogs my whole life and uh, they're happy and they're exercised and and um, the communication we have with, with each other when we're on the trails is just amazing. I love it so much. We ended up getting a, another dog um, who's six months old now. So I've just kind of slowly started introducing her to the sport um, gently. But that's why I wanted to have you on the show to see if I'm doing things the right way and people who listen, you know, to, to help them introduce their animals and keep them healthy and, and do things safely for them. So before we get into our questions and everything, Maybe just give us a brief introduction about yourself, your background, and from the CVMA as well. Yeah, sure. So I am um, an emergency and critical care veterinarian in, in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, and I've been doing that for about five years now. Uh, before that, I worked in small animal general practice. Uh, I went to school at the Ontario Veterinary College and grew up in Ontario, um, moved to Newfoundland when I graduated. Uh, and um, in Newfoundland, I've been involved with the Veterinary Medical Association on a provincial level. Uh, and then I also represent Newfoundland on the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association Council. So that's the CVMA. Uh, and the CVMA uh, sort of looks out for the interests of veterinarians across the country, as well as looking out for the interests of animals, all animals, not just pets. Um, they have a mandate for animal welfare and looking at uh, national issues such as like the transportation of animals, how we keep animals, uh, as well as looking out for how veterinary services are provided. Uh, and just basically being a voice for all veterinarians across the country when it comes to, you know, lobbying the government on federal issues uh, or helping share resources. You know, Newfoundland is population-wise quite a small province, uh, whereas Ontario, you know, quite a large province. So the resources available to Ontario veterinarians are not necessarily the same, and the CVMA helps uh, bridge those gaps for uh, provinces across the country. Oh, that's great. It's uh, sounds like it's very important and wonderful work you're doing. And 
you know, when it comes to animals, we all know they don't have a voice. They can't tell us what's wrong with them or what, what issues they are. So, so the work you guys are doing and advocating for them is so super important. And like you said, it's not just pets, pets, it's all animals. Right. And I'm, uh, I'm in Dufferin County. So, uh, in Ontario, so it's a big agricultural County. There's lots of, you know, livestock here and stuff like that as well too. And, and, uh, so yeah, great work you're doing. And I just want to ask what got you into the emergency, emergency, uh, medicine aspect of veterinary care? Cause that's uh, that's pretty intense at times. I imagine. <laughs> well, when I first moved to Newfoundland, um, every small animal clinic across the province did their own emergency work. There was no emergency clinic. So uh, I was doing on-call work at the clinic that I worked at. Uh, so I got sort of a taste for emergency medicine in that way. And then uh, Dr. Trina Bailey opened um, a referral surgical practice with the goal to eventually have it also be an emergency clinic. Um, and when she first started, it was just weekends. And so I did relief shifts in the emergency clinic uh, on the weekends and I really quite enjoyed it and it got to a point where she was ready to expand to seven days a week uh, and offered me a job and I decided that that was where I wanted my career to go. Uh, so it was kind of a little bit, um, circumstances just sort of led me there. Uh, my dog actually had made use of their emergency services one weekend and he was very, very sick. He needed emergency surgery. Uh, it was a pretty expensive endeavor and she um, sort of jokingly said to me when I was visiting him, do you want to make some extra money doing some relief shifts? And I was like, don't joke. Have you seen his bill? <laughs> uh, so that's sort of how it started. But um, I really enjoy kind of the problem solving side of um, animal medicine in general, because our patients can't speak to us. Mm -hmm. um, but I enjoy on emergency medicine side, you know, the adrenaline rush of a serious emergency, and then being able to fix that pet, the uh, happy feeling of sending that pet home when you didn't think you'd be able to. Um, but I also, I, I honestly really enjoy, you know, just being able to provide people peace of mind. You know, they bring in their pet for something they think is very serious and being able to say, this is actually nothing you need to be worried about. Um, you know, like I've had people come in cause they're convinced their male dog has a, an infection in his penis. Uh, and it's actually just normal discharge that happens. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And, you know, being able to tell someone that everything's fine and having them be relieved is a, is a great feeling. So, yeah, well, you can hear you can hear my dogs in the background and, and, and the bark, barky one. That's Rosie. She's an 11 year old uh, French bulldog. And uh, speaking of emergency visits, we had we she gave us a scare when she was younger. Um, we had thought we got rid of all our tennis balls. Uh -oh. And uh, she, she found one in the fringe, I guess, in the long grass. And uh she didn't look right one day. She looked like she was panting and she looked really dehydrated, tried to give her water and she couldn't swallow anything. So off to the emergency clinic, we went and she had, she had a chunk of a tennis ball uh, obstructing, obstructing her bowels, I guess. And um, so, you know, $4,500 later <laughs> and, yeah. and a pretty tough recovery for her. She's back home alive and well, but uh, I had three dogs at the time. We've got four now. And I looked at all of them. I said, that was your one free pass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, not, not really meaning it though. Cause I think I'd do anything to keep my dogs healthy and alive. And, you know, the older ones I have one who's a, who's an allergy problem, one who's got a bad back and the two young ones who are young and healthy right now. So yeah, but thank you for the work you're doing because, you know, I've been in that position where you, you think you're going to lose your, your pet or, or your animal and, uh, you guys come out and, and, you know, extend their life and save them and, and, uh, make a whole family relieved. So thanks for the work you do.
You're welcome. Um, so let's talk about Canacross. So um, Canacross, as you may know, I think I mentioned it in the emails, it's cross-country running with your dog. And it's like mm -hmm. I said, it's a sport I discovered um, last year sometime. And uh, there's this great event called the Iron Paws Stage Race, and it was an, a virtual event that ran for eight weeks over the winter time. So I did that with Piper. I, I nicknamed her Piper the Wonder Dog. And uh, like I said, she's a rescue from northern Manitoba. And uh, so we ran over the, you know, four times a week over the course of uh, eight weeks and, and just had a great time running on the trails. And she's impervious to the <laughs> snow. She really, she really loves the cold. And, uh, you know, I find that when we're out there running together, if we're running at my pace, she's just kind of sauntering. She's not really running. And, you know, if she, if she, <laughs> if she wants to run, she's dragging me along. And, and I looked down at my watch one time, trying not to trip over my feet. And we were running like two minutes and 20 seconds per kilometer. And uh, I, I couldn't keep that up for very long. You know, I had to slow her down. So really I'm running and she's just kind of having fun and, and leading the way. So the main difference with Canacross, as opposed to like just running with your dog on leash is that they're hooked up to you with a harness that sits at, at the human's hips. And then you have a, you know, five to nine foot bungee cord between you and your dog. And then they'll wear, um, they'll wear a harness, like a free motion harness, similar to what a sledding dog would use. Okay. Allow them to go. And then, and then you let the dog lead. They're kind of driving and you steer them. We'll give them common mushing commands or just say left, right, and things like that. So there's a lot of communication that happens with the animals. But like I had mentioned uh, at the beginning of our, our conversation, online, there's a bunch of different information out there um, when people are asking questions as to you know when is it best to start running with your dog what kind of temperatures can you run um, can you run in with your dog you know people often have like pad injuries with their dog and, and Canacross really promotes running with your dogs on trail to kind of stay off the asphalt and the sidewalks and things like that and um, you know sometimes that's not accessible you have to run on portions of the road and things so I wanted to you know Kind of pick your brain a little bit and mm -hmm. and get some professional advice here so we'll we'll get into our questions now and and kind of kind of go from there so i think one of the biggest questions that i see is people are wondering you know i just got my puppy i can't wait to start running with them uh, you know when can i start running with them i've seen answers where people say you know oh you know six months is okay some will absolutely say not until 18 months until the growth plates are closed some will say 12 months you know there's so many different answers out there um so, you know, I guess speaking primarily to running, um, you know, what kind of age is safe to introduce your dogs? Is there a range? Does it vary based on the breed? What, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? So um, you actually touched on the answer there and it is about the growth plates. Okay. Uh, and basically, so the growth plates are sort of at the end of the bones and it's where new bone growth occurs in our young, um, animals with bones. So it's not just dogs, cats have growth plates, people have growth plates. And if we are doing too much vigorous exercise um, before those growth plates are closed, it can cause um, changes in the way the bone develops um, that can lead to problems down the road. Uh, it can make them more prone, like if they're a breed that might develop hip dysplasia, uh, that exercising them too vigorously too soon might make that predisposition worse. Um, so it is best to not do sort of 
hard exercise until they are closed. And that does vary by uh, breed, more so by dog size. And your your average dog who's probably going to participate in sports like canicross or agility or anything like that, their growth plates will probably be closed or the important growth plates will probably be closed around 12 months. Uh, some of your giant breed dogs, like your Great Dane, your Irish Wolfhound, then you might be looking more at 18 months before those are really closed. You can still like, you know, go on walks and, 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 and like short runs, but you really just don't want to be doing hard exercise. Because of course, if anyone has seen puppies, they will run of their own accord if, if set free in the yard sort of things. So, you know, you, you don't want to keep them from having fun. You just want to not push them too hard. Okay. I, I think that's really great sound advice. And those were kind of the conclusions I kind of drew for myself, just thinking that, you know, I, lo I looked at the way Piper was running. And like I said, when I run, she's just kind of walking at a fast pace for herself. And, mm -hmm. and as when she was a pup, you know, I, I kind of got her into about, you know, six months old and we would just go for like maybe a kilometer or a mile and just, just nice and easy, just to get, get her used to kind of being in that kind of situation. Um, would, would you agree, like, like you had said, you know, letting a pup run in the, in the backyard and on their own accord, um, you know, you almost have a higher risk of injury kind of doing that type of play with those pups, just because there's so much stop, go, they don't quite know boundaries of things. Like I've had my younger pup, Luna, uh, running in the backyard and she ran right into the fence, like didn't even know. She kind of like <laughs> shook her head and it's just like... You know, I was thinking this seems more dangerous than just having her on the leash and going for a little run around the block. Yeah, I mean, there there is something to be said for that because for sure, I mean, they're they're foolish toddlers, right? Yeah. And and we definitely we get a lot in the emergency room. We get a lot of young dogs who have just managed to injure themselves in their own yard, um, in a way that the owners don't even know what happened. You know, dog came inside and is bleeding. Um, yeah. So that that I mean, that's certainly true. Um, it's you know that's part of growing up as a dog is sort of learning your boundaries and things like that uh and you know it's the same with with kids like if you shelter them too much then they don't know what's safe and what isn't safe because they kind of have to learn those lessons um i think the the big thing is the like hard hard encouraging i couldn't find the word encouraging hard running and hard play um you need to sort of listen to your dog. So if you have your, your young dog out in the yard and they're running around free willy nilly, um, they will sort of start to show signs that they're tired. They'll start panting. They'll be slowing down and you can kind of say, okay, time to come inside. And it would be the same if you're going for like a light jog and they're starting to slow down, starting to pant. All right. Now slow to a walk. Like don't, yeah. don't push them to exhaustion, pick up on the signs that they're tired and slow yourself down. Okay. It's, that's really good advice. I, I definitely have to say when I'm out with Piper, it's usually me that slows down and yeah. <laughs> she, she's, she's actually pretty good at picking up on my cues as well. And, uh, you know, when I, when I want to go, she'll go and she's always kind of checking in on me. So, like I said, that's one of the main reasons I love the sport is the level of communication I have with her. And I learn her cues and, and see when she's tired, needs a break. And she's kind of a weary dog. So, you know, if we're out in the trail, she'll let me know that there's somebody or something ahead of us because she'll usually fall back and run by my side if she gets a little bit spooked and then you know lo and behold around the corner there's another hiker there with their dog or something like that and then we just kind of pass them along and, and go from there so uh really good tips there and you kind of touched on one of the other questions was you know 
How can we make sure that we're not overworking our dog? So beyond kind of looking for their cues for their panting or noticing that they may be slowing down, um, are there any other pieces of advice you'd have for us to make sure that we don't, you know, overwork our dogs and, and you know, injure them or, or make them Yeah. Sick? I mean, that's a, an excellent question. And those are the big things is, is sort of picking up on their cues. And for me, any activity that you do with your dog, so whether it be Canyon Cross or maybe like ourselves here, we hike a lot with our dogs. Um, there's a lot of great trails in, in Newfoundland. So we take our dogs hiking a lot. Um, or even if you're doing like agility or dog showing, any activity, you always need to be focused on your dog. Uh, and realistically, if you're going on a walk with your dog, you should be focused on them because that's how you make sure, you know, they're not picking something up off the ground. Um, or if there's another dog coming down the sidewalk, you can read their reactions. Um, and just really getting to know your dog and forming that bond, you might start to pick up on on cues that say, okay, today we're extra tired. Um, for example, I used to have a dog, Ollie. Um, he loved to go on hikes um, and he was great. He stayed close. Um, he was pretty chill. And, and we were noticing that he was no longer leading the way. You know, he was still really excited to go and he wasn't like panting heavily, but he was always trailing at the end of the pack instead of being uh, the, the leader and uh, started him on some anti-inflammatory treatments for arthritis. And the next week he was front of the pack again. So, you know, he wasn't limping. He wasn't showing any obvious signs of pain. He just, we knew him to be heading the charge and scoping things out. And now he wasn't. Uh, and that was a cue for us that he just wasn't enjoying it as much as he could. Mm -hmm. um, our, our dog that we have now, Buttercup, she doesn't do well in the heat. Um, she still will get really excited if you go anywhere near her collar and her leash and she really wants to go outside. Um, but she will start dragging almost immediately. When we come back inside, she kind of flops out uh, and doesn't move around a lot. Whereas normally when she comes back from a walk, no matter how long it is, she has zoomies. Um, so if she comes back from a walk and she doesn't have post-walk zoomies, then we know, okay, today was too much for her. Uh, and most of the time it was too much because it was too warm for her. Okay. Uh, very good. So yeah, a lot of times, I guess it's, it's not the, the bigger, more overt um, signs, like, you know, they're panting or they just stop walking, but even subtle changes in behavior, like you had mentioned with Ollie, just kind of trailing behind now and, and not really doing his normal behavior with Buttercup, not having the zoomies after after a walk or run, it's it's funny with those zoomies, eh? I, I'll take Piper out for a run. I'll think she's nice and tired as soon as we get home. She says, zoom, 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 zoom. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> you're not tired yeah. yet. But there, are certain, there are certain dogs um, and certainly certain breeds where the more you exercise them, the more you need to exercise them. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's like a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, you did mention um, temperatures. You're saying Buttercup mm -hmm. doesn't do so great in the heat. And I know with... Uh, with Piper, she's not really tolerant of the heat as well as she is of the cold. She can be out for hours in the in in the winter time and and not get cold. And um, so I want to talk about that because that was one of the other questions that kind of you know often came up. Um, you know, people wondering, out, you know, when is it too hot for me to go out with my dog? When is it too cold? Um, you know, when does that become a factor whether we exercise our dogs outdoors or not? And, you know, I guess the second part to that question would be like, you know, do different breeds have different tolerances and adaptations for cold and heat? Because I, I did read somewhere um, that, you know, certain breeds will, um, 
they'll in interpret temperature differently than other ones. So what, what can you tell us about that and teach us? Yeah. So that, I mean, that's a huge topic. Um, and, it, and it's something that is, is discussed quite a bit in a lot of different contexts when it comes to dogs. Um, I mean, the, the first answer is if it's too hot or cold for you, it's too hot, hot or cold for your dog. Um, and, and most people are not going to consider taking their dog out for a run if they themselves would not be comfortable going out for a run. Uh, the next thing you have to consider is what's normal for where you live. Like if you go on to an online forum and you're talking to people who have a Vizsla or um, you know, a Greyhound in Arizona, the dog is used to much higher temperatures than that same short haired dog would be um, here in Newfoundland uh, or in, in Ontario. So what, what is their normal? So for us here, you know, in the summer, it will get over 20 uncommonly. We don't have a lot of days where it's over 20. We don't have a lot of days where it's sunny. So Buttercup is accustomed to cooler temperatures and she finds warmer temperatures um, she gets tired much more quickly. Um, you know, I would assume if if we had li been living in Arizona when we got her, she would be hopefully more tolerant of temperatures over 20 degrees Celsius because that would be sort of the normal for her. Um, and the same goes for cold. If you have, a, you know, a dog who you think of as being a cold temperature dog, like a Husky, if they grew up in Arizona, they're still going to be intolerant of, of high heat and you still shouldn't exercise them on warm days because they have that thick hair coat. Mm -hmm. um, they're designed for colder temperatures, but you can't take a Husky who grew up in um, Arizona and drop them in Northern Ontario and expect them to tolerate, you know, super below zero temperatures when they've never experienced that before. So you have to take into consideration what's normal for for your dog uh, and then yes the breed so you have your dogs with those double coats like the huskies that were bred um, in colder climates meant for colder climates meant for work in colder climates uh, then you have your dogs who you know were bred and and developed in warmer climates like um Chihuahua is always the one that comes to mind for me, though I don't know how many people are doing athletic activities with Chihuahuas, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, greyhounds, again, people don't do a lot of endurance work with greyhounds. They're sprinters, not long distance runners. But if you have uh, a greyhound and you're living in Newfoundland, you have a wardrobe uh, for that greyhound for the cold weather. Um, and then the other big thing is the conformation of the dog. Uh, and mostly it's those brachiocephalics or the flat-faced dogs. Right. So those flat-faced dogs, they don't have a lot of room for sinuses and dogs pant when they're hot because that's part of how they release heat. And if you have less sinus cavities, less facial space, then you're not going to be expelling heat as effectively um, as a normal snouted dog. You're also, um, they tend to have very narrow tracheas, very narrow nostrils, so they have a harder time passing air. So if they start getting overworked and needing to breathe harder, um, the effort they're expending is a lot worse. So like you mentioned, you have a French bulldog, you know, she's someone who shouldn't be spending a lot of time outdoors on a hot sunny day because she's much more at risk for heat stroke um, than your, your mixed breed dog from with a nice normal yeah, snap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's interesting. So even though, you know, a certain breed like a Husky is, is bred to be in the cold, it's very interesting that you say, you know, if this dog was born 
in Arizona and they they're you know only have ever lived in a hot climate they're still going to need time to adapt so that's something I, I wouldn't have considered before what's normal around your area and where you live for the dog so um, I mean it's I the guess, same for people really if you think about it like yeah. I I grew up in Ottawa and we had very cold winters. It wasn't uncommon to experience minus 30. Um, and as much as we don't get hot in St. John's, we also don't get super cold. So when I first moved here, I thought it was kind of funny how people would be complaining about the cold and bundling up so hard at like minus 10. Uh, I've lived here long enough now that I too am very cold at minus 10. But growing up, like you didn't put on your coat till it was like minus 20. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's so true. I, I find too, when uh, the seasons change here in Ontario, uh, when it gets cold, I need, I need a long time to adjust to being outside <laughs> and that stuff. When that, when the warm temperature comes, it's like, I, I need five minutes and I'm good to go. You know, and that's why the springtime here is so horrible. Cause you can have a really nice, beautiful, warm day where it's 25 and the next day you're down to eight degrees and you're freezing again and you're not used to it. So yeah, we had 25 degree last week and then two days later it was snowing. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> Welcome to Canada. Eh? That's yeah. not like the weather. Wait five minutes. Is that the saying? Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And yeah, it's funny you bring up the, uh, you know, the kind of the smushy face dogs. And uh, yeah, Rosie, um, when I walk her, it's quite embarrassing. It sounds like I have a pig with me because she's just, <laughs> she just snorts all the time. And I just like, oh, Rosie, what are you going to do? But you know, she's 11 and I'm used to it now. But uh, I call her my little pot belly pig sometimes. Just the noises she makes. Yeah. So. Well, working emergency, unfortunately, it's something we see quite often. Um, yeah. The bulldogs, the um, Pekingese, the pugs. When we have these, because really warm days are so uncommon here in, in the Avalon Peninsula, when we have these uncommonly warm days and those owners sorry you, you cut out there i think it was just oh. a signal issue last you were saying was uh, about the hot days and the owners yeah the, if the owners are not familiar with that risk for those specific dogs like if they've never experienced because once you've experienced your flat face dog getting heat stroke you will be very vigilant um but even just spending all day out in the yard without adequate shade those dogs can end up overheated um, and get quite sick heat stroke can be quite serious in a dog so you know if if there's any kind of heat warning for people i definitely wouldn't be taking my dog out for any kind of extended activity um, because they can get heat stroke and it can be quite uh significant for them okay so heat stroke is definitely one of the one of the more dangerous risks i guess for uh having your dog out in the heat are there any other things we should worry about with the heat like and and i guess you had mentioned you know shade and things like that so if we do have to be outside for whatever reason with our dogs what can we do to kind of help them uh well, it. water, you know, same as yourself. So if you're going on an adventure with your dog on a warm day, remember, you need to hydrate for two. Uh, and, you know, depending on what you're doing, like, like I said before, we hike with our dogs. So we have little backpacks for our dogs, and they can carry their own supplies. Um, but making sure you have water. Um, if you're going to be spending any amount of time on asphalt or cement, if those surfaces are really hot, uh, it can burn paw pads. Um, okay. you know, quite uh, quickly. And, and there's a task, you can just put the back of your hand on the asphalt. And if you can't hold it there um, for five to seven seconds, then it's too hot for your dog to be walking on it. Um, there are lots of charts out there on the internet that'll say like at these temperatures, the, the sidewalk is probably too hot. Uh, and again, it will depend too, like we can have a warm day here, but it's absolutely sogged in with clouds and fog. So the sidewalks don't get that hot. Um, but just putting your hand on it to have a feel because they don't have like their, 
walking, they're putting those pads right on there and a lot of pressure where we usually have shoes on. Right. Um, so, you know, and that's, and that's a, a step you can take if, if the ground gets really hot where you're too is um, to put little booties on them. Okay. Yeah. Good idea. I've, I've tried booties on my smaller dogs before. They just, they walk so funny on them, but uh, <laughs> yeah. sometimes, you know, they, they need them. And I noticed with my small dogs, you know, we're talking about heat, but when it comes to the cold, my small ones, um, they really don't tolerate the cold at all very well to the point where sometimes, you know, I take them outside and I have like a one minute window for them to do their business. And then I have to get them back inside. And, you know, sometimes I have to wait a little bit longer to take them out so they can actually have an opportunity to kind of relieve themselves just because of the, because of the cold. So, um, beyond, I guess in the cold too, like your dog's going to show you, obviously, if it's too cold for them, they're not going to be walking very well. They're going to slow down. So, you know, go inside would, you know, beyond like frostbite and stuff like that, um, having your dog out in the cold, um, are there any other really risks, um, involved? Because like I said, you know, Piper, she can tolerate the cold. I've been out there for hours with her and she seems to do fine. Um, even with her, who seems to be happy, go lucky out in the, in the snow, are there risks for a dog like that to be out there for too long? Yeah. I mean, in general, they're going to let you know. Um, and I find in general, it's not as big as a problem, mostly because people, it seems as a rule, don't like cold. Um, so people are less likely to want to be out and about uh, in the cold, but they, they're more at risk for dehydration. Um, and it's the same for people as well, because you don't feel thirsty uh, when you're cold. Um, as much as you do when you're warm, like when you're warm, you're like, oh, I want to cool drink of water. When you're cold, you don't have that same thought. So making sure that they uh, are, are going to drink sure is going to have a short hair coat. Um, anything that has like a very thin hair coat, their skin is just more, it's like yourself going out in a windbreaker when you really need that parka. Um, and, and so people make fun of people that dress their dogs, but there is some utility to it if you live in a cold climate and you have a dog who's a little bit more designed for uh, warm climates and the 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 heat on the sidewalk and so for some of them that will be uncomfortable if you're in the city the salt that is used to reduce ice uh, that can be very irritating to their paws so in the winter like we were living downtown there was a lot of salt we would have to rinse off our dog's paws when she came inside so that it wouldn't be prolonged contact because she also hates boots. Um, yeah. Again, boots are a fantastic way to protect if the dog will tolerate. You can also get um, pad balm. So like okay. a, a balm that provides like a bit of a barrier to, to help protect the pads, which I find is more helpful when it comes to salt and stuff in the winter than heat protection. Um, and then the, the, the ears and the nose. Um, and something that people sometimes don't seem to realize is that dogs can get sunburn. Oh, I didn't know that. So like the top of their nose where the fur is really thin, especially if they're not, if they are a light pigmented dog. Um, so if you think of like maybe your border collie who will have pink skin up there, mm -hmm. um, they can get sunburn and that happens in summer or winter. Um, and the same with the ears have very fine, not a lot of hair coverage. They can get sunburn as well as frost frostbite. Um, so being aware of that, you can get dog safe sunscreens, um, and, and place that on those spots for them. But, uh, but those would be the big things in the cold is again, the paw protection, uh, and then just being aware that dehydration can happen in the cold just as much as in 
storm. Oh, that's, that's great advice. I think, uh, you know, yeah, you don't think about even as people that you need to drink when, when it's, when you're outside running in the winter time, I've, I've heard a lot of runners say, Oh, I don't, I don't sweat in the winter when I'm running. So I don't bring water with me or whatever. And yeah, you still can't get dehydrated. Very good point. And, and I didn't know about the, the sunburning either. That's, that's really good advice. And, and you, you know, read my mind. We said there are dog safe sunscreens. So you don't necessarily want to put on your sunscreen on your dog. Better no. to get something that's specifically designed for them. Yeah. Okay. It's good. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. You all know how I love to run with Piper the Wonder Dog. Her safety and health are my number one priority when we're out on the trails together. And that's why I've been giving Piper Big Country Raw's all-natural joint support supplements since she was a pup. Trail Tales ARP is happy to provide you with a discount code for 10% off your order at bigcountryraw.ca. Visit bigcountryraw.ca and use the code TRAILTALES, one word, to receive your 10% discount today. Run wild! Um, when it comes to pad injuries, you had mentioned, you know, you know, you can get burns and things like that. Sometimes you get lacerations if you're out in the trails, um, beyond, um, you know, just kind of like your first aid stuff, I guess, if they don't need stitches and need, need any veterinary care, how can we care for them at, for them at home? And, you know, typically how long do they need to heal before you can get your dog active again? Yeah. So I would say most people that are doing things like canning cross with their dogs uh, are probably going to experience a pop pad injury at some point. It is certainly very common, especially you're out in the trails, the sharp rock. Um, we, we see it constantly in the emergency room. Um, a big reason that we will see it often is because it bleeds like stink um, when it first happens. They, you know, There's a, a lot of blood supply to the area. It's just like if you are trimming your dog's nails and you trim the nail too short, yeah. it, it will bleed quite a bit. Um, and part of it is because when they're standing on their paw, they're putting a lot of pressure and that is going to encourage the blood to flow. So I would recommend that always having like a little first aid kit where you have some bandaging material, um, even just because you're going to want to put that dog back in your car to get home and you don't necessarily want them bleeding all over your car. Um, a lot of paw pad injuries, if it's just the pad that is cut uh, and it's not super, super deep, even if you go to a veterinarian, we're not likely going to suture it because there's very difficult tissue to suture. The suture usually rips okay. right through it. Um, so it usually is treated with bandages and depending on the wound, you're changing that bandage every day or every other day. Um, depending on the kind of wound, sometimes the bandage also is helping keeping the, the tissue together because every time they step, they spread the tissue, which is gonna slow down healing. Wow. Uh, again, it's a different kind of tissue that also heals slowly in general. So you're always looking at minimum two weeks, um, two weeks of rest and, and potentially two weeks of, of bandage, bandage, bandaging so that it's protected. Okay. Uh, and the biggest thing is if you think about, you know, if you yourself cut your hand while you're cooking, you know, you clean that um, and then you try to keep it clean. You think of a dog's foot, what they cut it on, that's definitely dirty. Uh, and tap water is fine to clean it out. So, you know, if you have a, a bottle of water, pour, pour over it right away. Uh, when you get home though, like a good, like rinse it until you think you've rinsed it long enough and then rinse it for a few more minutes. Okay. Um, and just to make sure there's no dirt, no grit in there. Uh, you know, and I, I mean, I generally, if, if there's a significant amount of bleeding, I would generally say, get a vet to check it out. Maybe it should be sutured. Um, but for the most part, they're going to be managed with bandages and it's going to be at least two weeks before they can return to activity. Okay. And is, is cleaning, um, or flushing out with uh, tap water, uh, good enough? Would you recommend using any sort of like antibiotic ointments 
on the area or not really? I, I am a fan of using the minimal amount of antibiotics in life in general. Okay. Um, you know, antimicrobial resistance is a, a very big problem in the world, a very large topic actually that the CVMA has done a lot of work with. Okay. Um, so if you keep a wound clean and dry and protected, you should be fine without using antibiotics. Um, depending on like how long until it got cleaned, if, if it's deep enough to come to the emergency room, I sometimes will put them on antibiotics for a week, like prophylactically because they are likely to get infected. Uh, and then, you know, if it makes you feel better to put a little bit of polysporin on the wound on the first couple of days, you know, that's not gonna be the end of the world, um, but really it's just about keeping it clean, dry and protected. Perfect, perfect, great advice there. So let's move on to, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, getting a good hard uh, exercise session in with your dog. Um, you know, as, as people, you know, I just did a workout the other day and it's been a while since I did like a strength training workout and it's been two days and my legs are really sore and, you know, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to take it easy today. And, you know, as we know, our dogs can't talk to us. So let's say, you know, we have a good long, hard session with our dogs or even a short, hard session. How can we help our dogs kind of recover from that? And, you know, do dogs, do dogs need days off as well to recover from, from exercising? Yeah, I mean, like a canine athlete is, is not that much different from a human athlete. You know, rest days are important to help your muscles recover um, and just sort of give yourself a, a, a break. Um, so they should definitely have rest days. And, and I mean, if you're looking at a training schedule, you know, for a marathon runner, there's going to be rest days built in there and it should be the same for, for a dog. And the big thing is active recovery. You know, they talk about that for human athletes all the time. Like your rest day doesn't mean lie on the couch and don't move. Right. Because everything's going to seize up. Right. You know, if you do a, a hard strength workout, you should go for a walk the next day or you won't be able to. Um, so it's the same for a dog. If you do a really hard workout on Monday, you know, Tuesday, maybe just go for a short walk. You still go for a walk, still get some activity, but just don't push it hard. Um, and, and read your dog as well. You know, if you come back from that workout and they're bouncing around the house full of energy, well, then maybe they don't need a rest day tomorrow. But if they come back from that workout and they are just flaked out on the floor, totally exhausted for the rest of the day, you know, then, then hopefully tomorrow was planned to be a rest day because they need it. Um, the other things that you can do to sort of help them recover is making sure, and not all dogs care, uh, mine doesn't uh, provide them with like an, a really nice bed, like an orthopedic bed. That's like a oh. nice squishy memory foam because that's going to be easier on their joints than just sleeping on hard surfaces, okay. especially as they get older. Uh, my dog prefers the floor, like the cats sleep on the dog bed. Uh, <laughs> she, but she also likes to get up on the human bed. So, and we, we let her do that because it's good for her joints. She's eight years old, um, to sometimes sleep on soft surfaces, okay. uh, her crate has a memory foam mattress in it. So she has no choice, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so like, you know, just taking care of their joints the same way you would take care of your own joints. Um, and the other thing that you can do if it's an option in your area, um, is canine re rehabilitative therapies are a thing. Like people can be certified in canine rehab. We actually have, um, uh, a couple of people that work in this at my clinic and, um, and they'll do things like stability exercises and strength exercises that help with the muscles that they're not necessarily using primarily when they're out on the trails. Just like okay. you do strength workout if you're a runner, because there's certain muscle groups that are not getting 
a focused workout when you're running, but having, you know, a good core, a good strong back is going to help you prevent injuries when you're on the trail. Um, so if that's an option, getting in with um, that kind of program, um, there's a lot of really excellent exercises that they can even teach you to do at home with your dog, like getting dogs up on stability balls um, is actually really impressive to see how well the dogs can sort of balance on those. And that's really working a lot of their balance and core muscles so that they are able to handle, you know, twists and turns and stuff like that injury free out on the trails. Wow. That, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because, um, you know, muscular imbalances can also leave you prone to injury. Right. So Mm -hmm. To be, to be able to address those issues. I had no idea there were, there were services out there like that. So we'll yeah, to- it's getting more um, common. Um, I actually, so my dog is a, a purebred and we got her from a breeder uh, and through Facebook kind of been aware of her siblings. And one of her siblings actually, I think it was Alberta is where they were, but um, the, the person who, who took her in or him in um, does a lot of sporting with the dog. And she was doing like, that's where I first saw it in like, cause obviously at my clinic, our primary goal is post-op recovery. Um, but mm-hmm. it can be used by, you know, agility dogs, especially they're doing a lot of interesting movements and s- spending time with, um, a rehab canine rehab person learning exercises to kind of keep everything strong, keep everything even, uh, can really help them do well in the sport without injuring themselves. Awesome. Is this an, is this an emergency, uh, not emergency, emerging kind of um, field here for canine athletes with, with this kind of training? Yeah, I think it's something like when I was in school, there was a few places that had it for like, again, a post-op kind of thing. And yep. it's becoming more and more common. And it, there's a lot of stuff in veterinary medicine that, you know, veterinary medicine is driven by pet owners a lot of the time because it's what do pet owners want for their pets. And the more that pets become sort of part of the family, you want them to be part of your everyday life. Veterinary medicine has to find a way to make sure that you're able to do that safely, uh, make sure that you're able to enjoy that to the best of your abilities. And so um, there's like anything that is available for people, they start to want for their pet. Right. So people have come to realize how important it can be to go to physiotherapy, you know, to, to see a massage therapist regularly, to really take care of your body so that you can enjoy your sport as long as possible. Uh, the same goes for our canine companions uh, and just taking care of your body in a holistic way is going to make sure you can enjoy your sport for as long as possible. That's great. And obviously it's going to be more available in certain areas, sure. uh, but, uh, but if it is a, a, um, available in the area that you're to, uh, it's a wonderful resource for canine athletes. Um, and even as they get older and they have arthritis, keeping the weight off so that they can be as comfortable as possible, finding ways to exercise them safely. Uh, it's a really good, and the more people look into it and request it, the more available it will become as well. That's, that's very true. Um, you know, are there, are there plans people can purchase that kind of cover this type of treatment or is it kind of like, um, a pay as you use it type of service? Uh, it depends on the clinic or the facility that's offering it. I know that my clinic, you can buy like, you know, six sessions or what have you. Um, Yeah. We often promote that after an orthopedic surgery because those dogs, you know, are going to have the best return to function if they have this kind of 
um, program. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I'll just mention as an emergency veterinarian, I am a big fan of pet insurance. Okay. And there are some pet insurances that will cover um, these kind of extra kind of uh, modalities of treatment and will cover things like rehabilitative therapy, maybe not as a preventative measure, but if your dog ever became injured and you were using re rehab therapies to get them back on track, it would be covered by pet insurance. So if you are into having a canine athlete as a companion, that would be something to look into when you're looking at pet insurance. That's, that's great advice. I think, you know, pet insurance can definitely come and, and, and help you out. Like I'd mentioned earlier, we didn't have pet insurance when we had our incident with Rosie and the tennis ball. And that was, you know, almost a $5,000 bill and, uh, you know, insurance definitely would have come in handy there, but I think, you know, any dog or, or pet can, can get injured and, and require emergency care or, you know, even more kind of chronic condition care as they age. Um, but especially I, I would, I would think that with canine athletes, you know, the incidence of, of needing that care might be a little bit higher, mm -hmm. um, just due to the nature of, of the, the lifestyle. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the, a lot of people are like, oh, they're young and they're healthy. Um, for a lot of insurance plans, the younger they are, when you get them in, the cheaper it will be. Okay. And so I have three cats and a dog. They all have pet insurance. Um, I, I pay close to $400 a month for my pet insurance, which I understand, you know, is a, a large chunk of money. However, I just had a cat who had a pretty significant kidney disease, was on some pretty expensive medication to manage some of his symptoms. Um, and, and I would say over the past year, his veterinary bills have been several thousand dollars. Um, and 90% of it was covered by wow. his, his pet insurance. So, you know, depending, again, it depends on the pet insurance you get and, and everyone needs to sort of look into what they, they need. Um, but the, the insurance that I have, you know, it would cover if I had to get prescription food and things like that for the condition, all of those things would be covered. Um, and it, it, it would, if, if my eight-year-old large breed dog, um, injured her knees and needed surgery for that she would need rehab afterwards I could ha have her covered for that um, and it would just provide her the best possible recovery yeah that's uh you know that's that's really great um advice and and it really could you know put you in a position to to really rescue your dog because you know sometimes you know let's just face it sometimes people can't afford to have these big surgeries and then you're faced with with having a dog that suffers the rest of its life, we're faced with the decision of having to euthanize. And, and that's really something, if you can prevent that, yeah, you, know, you want to, it's, it's really tough. Um, yeah. You know, dogs, all animals in general, you know, they're, I've heard the saying, you know, they're, they're a part of your life, but you're their whole life, right? Like yes. When you have yeah. them and, and to, to give them the best life that we can, I think is just paramount um, because it's so rewarding as much as, as, as painful as it is when you lose, lose your animal. And I've, you know, lost several dogs through my lifetime. Um, you know, the, the joy that they bring you is, is, is worth the pain. I think, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to live a life without dogs, um, you know, to avoid, to avoid losing them. But uh, yeah, very good advice with the insurance. Uh, so, you know, for, for those of you listening, definitely uh, um, agree with, with Dr. Brownbury here and uh, go check out some insurance plans and see if there's something that you can find that's right for you and your animal for sure. Um, because we, we want to keep our animals healthy. We want to keep them happy. 
And um, with that, we'll get on to our last question as we you know, approach the end of our interview here. Um, and that would be in the realm of kind of nutrition with canine athletes. Um, you know, I don't really know what the answer is um, with dogs. I've, I've seen different answers um, online again, but I don't want to kind of hang my hat on any of those. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of, you know, can across or running with their dogs, do we need to be careful of how much we're feeding them or the types of supplements we might give them um, through exercise? Like, do they need extra calories if they're going on an extra long run? Or are they okay with their regular food maintenance? Like, yeah. I mean, again, you know, canine athlete, think of a human athlete. Um, the more you work, the more calories you're burning, so the more calories you need, because just like in a person, a calorie deficit is going to result in weight loss. Um, the other thing to think when you're an athlete is your protein requirements are going to be higher because that's what you need as a building block for building more muscles or maintaining and repairing your muscles. Uh, one big thing that's different between a, a canine athlete and a, and a human athlete um, is for canine athletes, they really, um, they need their energy more protein and fat. Whereas, you know, human athletes talk a lot about carb loading and stuff like that. Yeah. It, canine digestion is not the same. Um, also their protein should be a highly digestible animal-based protein for them to get the most out of it. Um, there are challenges, you know, when you have dogs with allergies and things like that and, and finding yeah. a diet that works for them, that doesn't flare up their allergies can be challenging, um, because usually they're allergic to the common protein sources. Uh, but a high, high protein, high fat diet is going to be best for an athlete. If you're like a weekend warrior where this is something that you're doing more on your off time, not an everyday thing, then you do need to actually be more mindful because you can't feed them as if they're working hard every day if they're not working hard every day, because what will happen is they'll have a calorie excess, they will gain weight, and then they'll be more prone to injury. Uh, so you you do need to kind of, if, if you're taking this really seriously, you do need to look at a change in the diet and the same for a person, right? Like I, I run. Um, and if I'm training for a half marathon, I'm going to need more calories in my life than if I'm just doing 5Ks. Like right now, I'm not running very long distances, so I'm not eating anything extra. Um, but if I start increasing my distances, if I don't increase my calories, I'm going to lose steam. I'm going to be tired. I'm not going to make progress. Um, and it's going to be the same, same for your dogs. There are like if you're doing a lot of hard work with your dog, um, there's a lot of research that's been done with uh, sled dogs because they do long endurance work. Mm -hmm. uh, they need high energy and you're not going to get what they need from, uh, you know, pet food you pick up at the pet store. Um, so that would be that would be a, a sort of a world I would go to for advice if we're doing a lot of hard work, like if you have a competition season coming up or something like that. Right, right. Um, and there has been some studies, some evidence that post-exercise carbohydrates can be helpful. So not the carb loading that humans do, but maybe some bonus carbs after uh, a hard workout um, to, to help with the recovery. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, the sled dog world is where a lot of that research has, has occurred because um, they do long, hard days and it's important that they keep their energy up. 
Okay. Uh, quick question for you here. You know, I know with, with humans anyways, um, you know, we have those, those glycogen stores and then we'll have like, you know, like you said, kind of um, post-workout kind of um, feeding again, right? To kind of restore those glycogen stores. Is it the same for dogs? Is that kind of what you're getting at with yeah. the, the carbohydrates for the post-exercise? Yeah. I mean, it's similar. Um, there, I mean, it, it I'm not like the greatest with, with pathology and like the deep, the deep science of it. Sure. Um, I think that's part of the reason I like emergency medicine because we just are on the surface a lot of the time. But, um, but when it comes down to is dogs process energy a little bit different. So do, so do cats. Um, you know, for example, in cats, they really need a lot of protein. They need more protein than dogs do. Um, and, and a high protein diet is gonna be more successful for weight loss in a cat than a sort of a low density, like a high high fiber kind of diet. Okay. Um, so, so with dogs, they definitely, there is some sort of glycogen restoring with that post-workout carbohydrates they definitely benefit from, um, but, but they really do much better with fat as an energy source if they're doing hard work. Okay, perfect, perfect. And, um you know, are there, are there any supplements we could give our dogs? You know, I, I know, you know, I'm not going to, as far as I know, there are no protein shakes I'm going to mix up <laughs> for my dog, but you know, uh, like preventative joint care type stuff, or, mm -hmm. um, I don't know what else might be out there, but you know, is there anything? Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot out there uh, and a lot of it is anecdotal. Okay. Um, whether or not it's helpful. Like a lot of it will be people saying this worked for me. So I'm going to try it in my dog. They don't see anything bad happen or they convince themselves something good happened. Um, and a big one is actually glucosamine. There's not a lot of scientific studies that have shown that glucosamine makes a difference for dogs. It doesn't hurt, but uh, there's not a lot of support that it makes a difference. Uh, what does have scientific backing behind it is green lip muscle. Okay. Um, so supplements or diets that include that can be very helpful. That's actually what we used for, uh, my dog who was trailing behind and got him back at the front of the pack. Um, so that, that's a, that's a big one. Um, fatty acids, omega fatty acids. Um, and, and I would just always recommend sort of touching base with your veterinarian. You know, there's certain, um, certain products that you'll get at the pet store that haven't necessarily been vetted. There's not a lot of regulation around supplements that can end up on the shelf at the pet store. Okay. Uh, and I'm not saying that that means there's bad things on that shelf, but they just might not have the quality control that ensures that you're getting what you think you're getting every time. Um, and so if you, you know, if, if you have a canine athlete, you're, ideal situation would be that you have a veterinarian who is also into that world because they're going to carry the best supplements. They're going to do the research to find out what companies you can trust. That's not going to be an option for everyone, but yeah. a lot of these supplements are also what we reach for, for our arthritic pets. So um, like I said, the fatty acid supplements, it, it depends on the ratio of omega threes to omega sixes. Like there's, there's a bunch of um, research into that. So making sure you're getting the right ratio, your best bet is to actually check touch base with your veterinarian about what products they recommend. Great advice. Great advice. Dr. Maggie Brownbury, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise in, in helping us learn how to better care for our dogs and keep them safe while we're out there on the trails with them. 
And uh, I guess I have one last thing to say to you, which is to say to all my guests here on Trail Tales ARP, and that is to run wild, my friend. And as you are a runner, I guess that would apply for sure. Thank you. It's been fun.